Thanks to ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode and the smartest way to hire. The ground is always shifting in the tech world. A constant barrage of new programs, platforms, competitors, and regulations make running a tech company a wild ride. So you need a fast way to find people with the skills to keep up. There's no better way than ZipRecruiter. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. If you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com decode. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large at Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks universal basic income is too much. Let's just focus on Earth. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Annie Lowry, who writes about economic policy for The Atlantic. Her new book is called Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. Annie, well, that's a lot of stuff, Annie. I know. It's well, a very, very grandiose I know. Title. Wow. It's going to solve all our problems? Yeah, something like that. All right. So let's talk about how you got to do this book. Yeah. Annie, you are, let me just, by, by way of disclosure, Annie is married to Ezra Klein, and I don't really care if she is, but Ezra does another podcast at Vox Media, but it has no impact on what we're going to talk about here. But that's nice to have full disclosure, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. to your work, but we like to do that, um, to give it disclosure. But you, how did you get to doing this? You, you've been doing a lot of different jobs, right? You, but you write about economic policy, so this falls yeah. into you, your area, and it's also an area that Silicon Valley has been talking about a lot. Obsessively, right? Um, so I, yes, I've had a bunch of jobs, but I've been- Well, go through them. Just People like to know how people get to places. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, my first job out of college- the economy was was falling apart. This was 2007, and I was an assistant at The New Yorker for a while mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. So basically, you know, like getting coffee and transcribing interviews and stuff. Then I made this jump and, and became a writer and um, ended up as the money box columnist for Slate. Mm-hmm. So did that for a while, which was an amazing and a great job. That's in D.C., uh, then I covered Treasury for The New York Times and mm-hmm. wrote about economic policy for The New York Times for some time, then kind of went and decided to do magazine writing. So I wrote for The New York Times Magazine, New York Magazine, and now I write for The Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So that was the that was the general trajectory. trajectory. Right. Right. And But I mean, it's always been that I like writing about how the government impacts individual humans' lives, basically, mm-hmm. or how individual human lives right. impact the government backwards. Right. And that has, you know, it has a lot of salience out here. Um in Silicon Valley right. and just in so California. How did you get onto universal basic But Here you are writing about economic policy, right? Yeah. Which could be anything. Like yeah, it's like a welfare huge Welfare or whatever. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, you know, government subsidies for mm-hmm. oil and gas businesses mm-hmm. and DARPA and, you know, research and that kind of stuff. It's a really huge universe. And it's and the so, impact of the government on our society. Exactly. How the government is shaping the economy and shaping individual financial decisions. So I had written about UBI a couple times because there had been a referendum in Switzerland mm-hmm. uh, that got like a surprising amount of support, but didn't come past. And then I wrote about um, a charity that is based in New York, but is funded with a lot of money from Facebook and Instagram founders and a lot of tech money called Give Directly. And so what they do is they take money and they give it directly to poor people in Kenya, Uganda, and now one other country trying to remember. Anyway, but they give it in the Great Lakes region of Africa. And so they sort of go and they they target villages that are very low income. They give people cell phones and then people get mobile money transfers. And this has been shown to work really well to alleviate poverty. Right. Where it's actually, it's 
pretty hard. We know a lot about what makes a change in people's lives, but mm -hmm. we also, there are a lot of things that don't work very well, right? right? Like giving $100 million to New York school system didn't seem to work very no, well. Right, right. Uh, but this does. And so, um, and then, you know, it had just been that there were a ton of experiments and um, it became sort of a part of party platforms on the left in Europe. And so then decided to write a book about it. Not so much sort of stumping for the idea, which, you know, Chris Hughes and Andy Stern and a lot of other really right, great we did people it. We do. We did a podcast with Chris. Yeah, Hughes. yeah. Friend, friend of the pod, Chris Hughes. But, um, but because it lets you talk about a lot of other interesting right. things, right? right? Like, why do we allow so much poverty in this country? Mm-hmm. Should we require something from people in exchange for Which is a big welfare? debate right now. Huge debate right now, mm -hmm. right? Like, should we give people money? Should we give them job training? Right. Like, what 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 trade-offs are we making right. here? Well, let's set the table for this. Because, yeah. why, let's, you know, we're talking, this is a, is a global phenomenon. Universal basic income has been tried in Sweden from lots of different countries are trying. Tons, this. yeah. So give an overall view of where it started. Like, do a little history lesson for people of where it started. Because some people, when I mention it to them, they're like, well, that's communism, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I was like... Well, yeah, like, kind of. Yeah, yeah yes. except the government is constantly giving value to people in the similar way. That is, like yeah. job training versus money versus yep. handing them money. Absolutely. So talk about sort of how this came to be. Like right. What was the idea? Because again, the government does do this already in in different ways. Absolutely. And so I think the clearest and most immediate way to say it for people to understand it is social security. Right. Everybody who's working, you're going to pay taxes with the understanding that you're going to quote unquote get that money back. It's not quite as simple as you getting the money back. But the idea is, you know, you're going to pay a payroll tax and then that money is going to come back to you when you retire. And the truth is that the government does this in all sorts of different ways, mm -hmm. either through the direct public provision of services. Right. So um, things like the medical system for the military mm -hmm. or by financing things right, like the home mortgage interest deduction. But the, the history of the idea is really long and interesting. So it's like 500 years ago. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, uh, Martin had, Luther. Yeah. Like actually, yes. Okay. At that, at that time, you had a transition from this feudal economy in Europe to a mercantilist. Where the Lord gives everything. Yeah, exactly. To like this mercantilist capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. And this transition, as these big transitions often are, is kind of ugly. You end up with all of these serfs who, instead of being able to till kind of land that is owned by a lord and live off of it, instead are working for the lord for wages. Mm -hmm. This is like a gross oversimplification, but this causes all sorts of poverty, especially, and you know, there's a lot of wars going on at the time, and it, it causes a lot of poverty and specifically urban poverty. So people kind of get booted off of their feudal land and they come to these cities and they become beggars. And so um, the British crown, decides that they're going to have to do something about this. So they create the system of, this is in the late Tudor period, poor laws. Mm -hmm. And those are create workhouses for poor people to work in. They also create like a dole, cash payments. Mm -hmm. And so then for the next 500 years, you have this really kind of complicated, interesting history of how governments decide to give money to poor people and support poor people. And we could sit here talking about this for like 10 years. <laughs> it's a very detailed history. But since 500 years ago, there's been this thread of thought that like, instead of giving people work, you should just keep them, give them cash. And mm -hmm. that the, the kind of fundamental insight there is that the problem with poor folks is that they don't have enough money. Right. Yeah. It's right. nothing else. Right. 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 Um, or not, not. Or, or have that, no ability to make money. Yeah, exactly. I have no ability to make money. And that the simplest way and perhaps the best way 
to get them out of poverty is just to give them cash. So here in the U.S., you have this very like bootstraps culture from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And so welfare cash payments are provided generally only to widows, single mothers. This is true for a long time. And then because of the country's racial history, um, welfare 20 years ago becomes, and 50 years ago maybe, becomes seen as as being politically unpalatable because it's a way to support black single moms Mm -hmm. and it gets really demonized. And so we don't do um, cash payments in this country in the way that European and other social democracies uh, or the European social democracies do. So this is all a very long so way of it, saying it, it, that there's it, it, always it been this on, tension. It takes on, a, 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 like you said, a demonization versus in Europe where people are used to that. That's part yeah. of the social contract. Yep. Is that we're going to pay poor people to not be as poor as they are. Yeah. Right. And not require them to work and not require them to do anything else. And in this country, it's, it is. It's demonized. It's that you, you're you taking money, like welfare queens, that whole the whole concept. Exactly. And what's funny is that it's actually giving money to poor people is way less controversial in poor countries. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the big middle income countries, India, Brazil, Mexico, it's really not controversial to take poor folks and just be like, here's some cash, mm-hmm. you know, like, let's get some more calories into your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, let's make sure that you over the goal being, yeah, the goal being let's alleviate the worst forms of destitution in low income countries. And one thing that's kind of been quietly happening is that um, even really low income countries have built safety nets kind of in the model of Europe or the US. So like mm-hmm. Ethiopia now has a pretty big system of cash payments to poor people. Mm-hmm. And that didn't used to be true like 100 years ago because these countries just didn't have any capacity to do it. Um, so here in the US, it's probably the most divisive place for this because of our really complicated racial history. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and, other, and, our, and, our, and a national feeling that the bootstraps yeah. idea. Yeah, it's also a cultural thing, right? Like we really, really think uh, pretty deeply in this country that that able-bodied adults should work and should take care of themselves and that that's the best path out of poverty. Right, and we're not going to help you do it. You're mm. going to pull up yourself by your own bootstraps. Yeah, and even if we were to help you do it, that that would be bad for you, mm-hmm. right? Like you you should be working. You shouldn't be on the dole. Right, so yeah. talk about how universal medicine then came to be because it is uh, there's a version of it happening every like all the time, whether it's welfare mm-hmm. or something, because that's what it sounds like to people. Right, absolutely. And I think that you point out a good and an interesting thing, which is that the government is constantly giving and taking money, even from people who would never say that they're on. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the best example of this, in my mind, is there's a really interesting study that was done by a woman named Suzanne Mettler. Mm-hmm. And she asked people, do you receive any, like, does the government help you? I forget the exact phrase mm-hmm. of the question, but do you receive government assistance or like, are you on a government program? And poor people, they know. They're like, yeah, I get SNAP. I get food stamps. Right. SNAP is, explain that. Yeah. SNAP is, is food, stamps, food stamps. Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which it's about 40 million Americans use it um, in any given month, I think. But higher income Americans, they're like, no, government doesn't do anything to help me. Mm-hmm. Even even if they are, if they have a mortgage, they're absolutely receiving home mortgage interest deduction and probably a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, the government interacts with high income families, but it tends to do so through the tax code. So you don't right. really see it and it doesn't feel like right. assistance because so you're not get getting a, a check back. They get a kickback. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And that's a really good way of putting it. And so that's that's one of these ways that culturally, you know, we see the direct provision of cash or something else to a low-income family mm-hmm. as being sort of offensive. Yeah, morally different than a high-income family, you know, getting some money back because they're for, working. Yeah, they exactly. Deserve that they own this kind of thing, which mm-hmm. is it, it is an interesting thing when you start. I had a I got a years ago when the um, 
Oh, those people who hate the government. I forget that group. The, the, Libertarian. Whatever. No, there's a whole bunch of them. And they got on the phone with <laughs> Separatists. me. Separatists. They, they, they got on the phone with me and were starting to argue, like, we don't need government. We don't need government. We don't need government. And yeah. I said, and I stay on the phone with these people and I said, well, you know, how was your commute to work today? Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, um, what do you mean? I said, you need to get off the streets because the government built those. You need to get off the yeah. highways. You need to stop using the highways. Also, fire department, you can't use it anymore. And I was like, I started listing all the things. And I said, how'd World War II work out for you? Because that was a really good government <laughs> addition to you. I mean, you'd be goose-stepping down Market Street if you, we didn't kind of do that one, like kind of thing. And yeah. it was really, they were like, well, and I go, you use the government all the time when it suits yeah. you and not when it doesn't. So Absolutely. you need to stop saying this. Like, yep. Or you need to just go live in a hut in the middle of the woods, which, by the way, is probably being maintained by the government. The woods are probably, you know what I mean? In yeah. Some way. So we do get payments. But so talk about this UBI itself. So why right. has it come back in this way? Is it just a, a rebranding of something or is it, and who started it? So the current movement comes from, so there's a bunch of lower income countries that are like, you know, so India being the biggest one, but a lot of smaller ones that are like, we want to end poverty as simply and cheaply as possible. We are going to do cash payments to as many poor people rather as we can. Rather than create jobs for them rather than do exactly. job training. We think that they are going to be better off if they are just no longer destitute, if their kids are eating enough, it's going to give them that little bit of buffer. They might even work more, mm-hmm. right? Because they'll be able to just Right. You know, they won't be in that kind of spending all their time trap. trying to get pennies. Right. Whereas in the high income countries here in the US, it's and in, you know, some places like in Europe, it's driven by sort of two impulses. So one is let's have the government be smaller, less paternalistic by just giving people cash and not kind of meddling in their lives. So this mm-hmm. is sort of the libertarian Charles Murray type argument. And then the second looks at this country and says, we have a huge number of kids who grow up in poverty, despite all the money that we spend. We have a huge number of non-disabled adults who are in poverty. Maybe a way to do this is actually just to give them cash. Let's mm-hmm. like stop and just directly transfer money. Because again, we really don't do unconditional tra- cash transfer payments in this country outside of social security. Right. So we know that social security is hugely effective at ending mm-hmm. poverty among seniors. Mm-hmm. Let's just do it for everybody, especially the most vulnerable. And where did it first start? Start from kids. Right. Where did it first start? The UBI. You know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so no government has exactly a UBI right now, but right. many have. But some these are experiments. So how did it start here? It's, it's was it by tech people? Was it by where did it begin to be experimented here? Yeah, so a lot of the energy for it comes from tech, mm-hmm. right? So right now, um, you know, probably what fifty miles from here, Stockton mm-hmm. is sending out payments. Y Combinator mm-hmm. is uh, sending out payments as part of a pilot, mm-hmm. and then uh, Canada recently uh, started doing it in the province of Ontario via a tech company. Yeah, no, actually, that's a governmental one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so a lot of this interest comes from tech, and I think that where it comes from tech, a lot of that concern is about, well, what if robots take all of our jobs and none of us are working? Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of like probably the third bucket of interest in it mm-hmm. comes from this great fear that that someday we're all going to be out of a job. And, you know, that technology is advancing so rapidly um, that, you know, we won't need people to work in factories anymore. We won't need truck drivers, you know. We won't need blank, blank, blank. Yeah, right, exactly. When you get back, we're going to talk more about how it how it's iterated itself and what the, what the future of it is, because it sounds like it's the government's not leading this. It's private yeah. people trying it, at least in this country. We're talking with Annie Lowry. She has a new book coming out called Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. And she's going to explain how that's the practice, and she's going to talk about how it works when we get back. 
Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode and the smartest way to hire. In the business of tech, it is practically scripture that you have to be comfortable with big, bold, exciting risks. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to minimize the downsides by taking big risks. If you're hiring, you can massively reduce uncertainty with ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. As applications come in, it analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates to save you time and make sure you never miss a great match. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So if you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. The lowest risk price there is. Don't waste another second. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode and start putting that technology to work for you. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara. Guess who I talked to this week? I will tell you, Manoush Zomorodi used to do a podcast called Note to Self. Now she has her own company that's also producing a podcast and she is funding it using the blockchain among other mechanisms. What does the blockchain have to do with a media startup? Good question. I had that question myself. We talked about that at length along with some other issues like how to deal with Mark Zuckerberg. It's a good conversation. You will like it. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're back in the red chair with Annie Lowry. She is a writer about economic policy for The Atlantic, and her new book is called Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. So talk about the efforts right now that are happening. So it's being tested all over the world, obviously, in other countries. Let's talk about how it's being done here, because it is a tech-focused effort. Yeah, absolutely. So the concern right now is that if... um, Say that there's another recession in a couple of years mm-hmm. and all of a sudden... All there of, will be. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually there's there's absolutely going to be one. And uh, businesses see that the price of sort of AI influenced technology is falling really fast. Mm-hmm. And so we have another recession and kind of a jobless recovery again. And you have a huge number of people who are out of work, right? Um, the government doesn't have very many measures to help in a situation like that because like unemployment insurance is time delimited. It's not really meant to buoy people for long periods of time. So here in the US, there's now a bunch of groups, political groups, um, think tanks, and tech companies themselves that are saying like, well, in that world, the government giving money to folks might be really, really, really important. So two of the most interesting experiments, this one that I mentioned, it's happening in Stockton where they're just sending some money to folks. And they're running an experiment. They're going to see what happens. What kind of folks are they getting? Is it poor folks or just everybody? Yeah, it's not everybody. It's just poor folks. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's actually pretty important to note that, yeah, it's it's not universal, right? Part of this idea is that everybody should be getting it right. and that if you're higher income, we'll just tax it back. And then the second really interesting experiment is coming from Y Combinator, where they started in Oakland, just giving out money. And now I think that they're in five states. Again, sending money to folks, seeing how it changes and their lives. And same thing? Yeah. So they did more targeting um, of people. And so they were looking in, in lower income places, but then they randomized, right? You know, they, they said, we're going to give it to people sort of regardless, like without, you know, checking to make sure that they're unemployed or something like that. Mm-hmm. How much do they give people? I think that they are giving like $500 a month, if I remember correctly. And how are you, all of them are like that in that? What's it supposed to represent? Yeah. The so number? so uh, there's this idea that it should be 
low, like a small enough amount that it's not really going to change people's decision to work or not, mm-hmm. right? You know, 500 bucks a month is maybe going to help a lot of families, but it's not going to keep your head above water exactly. The same thing with like a thousand dollars a month, mm-hmm. $12,000 a year is not going to, it's not going to, you know, it's not much of a hammock, right? Mm-hmm. You can barely live on that. Right. Um, right. And I think that that would just, I think for most families, you, you'd be still far below the poverty line. Um, but it's enough to really materially help. 500 bucks is going to help a family quite considerably, um, especially if they're lower income, again, without changing the impulse to work too much. So that's that's sort of the idea here. So not too much so yeah. that they don't sit around. Exactly. So lower than a social security payment, which really can, you know, let people retire. And a lot of folks in the U.S. live on social security alone. Mm-hmm. Just just enough to kind of help. To help. And, yeah. then, and then what do they do then? They study it, what people do when they have it? Or do, how, do they know what happened before and then after? Or what's the... Yeah, exactly. So yes, the idea is to see what happened. So we have some other um, examples of UBI type payments, and we know a lot about what just giving people money does. So one is that very often it doesn't make them stop working, mm-hmm. right? There's this great fear. Well, you know, like if you're some 25-year-old kid and you're pretty aimless and you don't know what to be doing, you know, you'll just take the money and you'll hang out in your mom's basement and you'll never make anything of yourself. Mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have much of an effect on that. And where it does stop people from working, it tends to be the parents of very young kids. So maybe you're a mom and you're like, all right, you know, my partner will keep working, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay mm-hmm. home with a kid. Or, um, Which might have some good effects. Yeah, might have some great effects, right? right. And then um, it also seems to take younger kids and to keep them in school a little bit longer. Again, not a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like a pretty good thing, even if it means that you know they're out of the workforce a little more. And the third thing is that for people who are unemployed, it seems to elongate the period of job search. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, wait, are they just like hanging out and not working? And it's like, no, they're actually waiting for a better job. They're waiting to connect for a better job. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, there's a lot of kind of just straight forward stuff, right? Like it bumps people up above the poverty line. It helps smooth their consumption. So like month to month, if you're really low income, you're not going to be eating radically different amounts of food, um, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, And it seems to improve people's well-being, right? Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a safety net. And so so maybe it reduces the cortisol in your blood. Maybe it makes your life a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Maybe it reduces stress. Right. And explain why you think that, that, so the tech people feel guilty about what's happening or they just feel like... I think so, yeah. Is that where it's from? (laughs) I think they're terrified. I've talked to a ton of people in tech because I'm like... I look out in the economy and right now unemployment's what, like 3.8%? It's very low. It's very low. I'm like, where? what are you seeing here in Silicon Valley that makes you so convinced that we're not going to need to work anymore? Mm-hmm. And they just see things differently. So explain that. Yeah, they're like, look, what is going to happen with AI is you're going to get this kind of flywheel type effect where technologies are going to be self-improving. And so anything automated is all of a sudden going to be done by a machine. Right. It's going to make sense for a business instead of like hiring a human yep. who might show up drunk at, or hungover at work, yeah. m- might get sick, might have a baby, might right. adopt a kid. All these human yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. All these human things. Right. We're going to replace you with a robot and why not? And so a lot of them point to trucks and taxis as being kind of like That's a the first vanguard of this. Right. But then they say like, why not anything else, right? Like, right. What if every shop you walk into has nobody in it because the robot is restocking? What if we need way fewer like nurses and doctors 
Right. Because like a AI assisted system is just so much better at diagnosing and curing right. you. Right. Yeah. I always say anything that can't be digitized will be digitized. Exactly. And they will do it. I mean, it's interesting because like they were talking, I was, I was in coal mining territory and they're like, well, we're just going to bring coal mining jobs back. I said, your bosses will use robots if it's better. Absolutely. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. And they're like, no, they want to bring back jobs. I go, they will get rid of you in a New York for a good minute. Like Second, like, even think about things that really require big staffs of people. So I was talking mm-hmm. to somebody about home construction mm-hmm. and they were like, we are going to prefab homes. So you'll say, you know, I want a really big five box home and mm-hmm. I want a two box home. And then you're not going to need like a huge staff of people to construct these because you're just basically, we're all going to be using yeah. like modular houses. Right. So I have no idea if that's going to happen, but it doesn't yes, seem it crazy to me. No, right? it, it is. <laughs> and of so it is. what happens? It? And so, you know, there's some jobs that we know probably are never going to be digitized, mm-hmm. like yoga instruction, mm-hmm. maybe <laughs> uh, taking care of babies. That seems right. like something that you really need. Yeah. But like how many of those jobs are there? Right, right. I'm right. hoping that journalism sticks around, but yeah. like uh, <laughs> it's going to be robot care and robot Annie talking. Yeah, uh, that's true. So, so, they, so they're terrified, they're terrified. about this. So they, when you talk to them, yeah. talk about that. What it, so what they just want to fix it. They just want to know they're going to cause pain and want to. So I think that they see the upside and the downside. A world in which there's way less human labor in some ways is great, right? Because mm-hmm. then we get right poetry, right? Yeah, exactly. Like all of us, a lot of our material needs will be met better and, and more cheaply. Right. And at least hypothetically, that should free us up to do better and more interesting stuff. Economists have thought that this would be the case for a long time. And I think that 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 folks in Silicon Valley and tech say that too. They're like, this world will be better, but not if everybody is miserable. (laughs) But then how do you earn money? Then everybody gets universal basic and talk about the various ways it could go like every single and who gets what? Right. So there's, there's a couple ways to do this. Everyone gets a thousand dollars or yeah. So like why should everybody get a thousand dollars? Right. The prototypical example is everybody gets a thousand dollars a month. Yeah. And so that's, that's going to help. There's kind of two concerns with that. Right. So one is that (laughs) <laughs> say that you have like a $65,000 a year trucking job or mm-hmm. an $80,000 a year Bay Area construction gig. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be happy with $1,000 a month? Right. No. Like there's going to need to be some kind of cultural change or the UBI is going to need to be bigger or, you know, something. I don't know what else. And, you know, the second thing with that is, right, if you are if you are somebody who works in tech, you're an engineer, you're making like $300,000 a year, you don't need an extra $1,000 mm-hmm. from the government. Right. And so, you know, the, the thing to do there is just to tax it back, right? Like basically you make it so that if you're above some income income threshold, you don't get it. The, the other way to do this, there's lots of other ways. I shouldn't say the other way. But one mm-hmm. other way to do this is to do it as something called a negative income tax, where basically... If you're below a certain income level, the government is going to boost you up to that level. Mm-hmm. And then above there, you'll just have the same sort of standard thing where the government instead takes money away. Right. So that's a, that's a way to do it. And who is going to pay for all this? Yeah. So there's a lot of money out there to be taxed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of spending out there to be cut. Mm-hmm. People really worry about this. It's not an impossible. So you look at, we would not need taxes higher than they are in, say, France. Mm-hmm. Now, we not might not like taxes to be as high as they are in France, mm-hmm. but the U.S. actually has, like, among OECD countries, pretty pretty low tax base. No, I know, but they still <laughs> can't get enough of cutting taxes. I mean, no. look at what Trump just did. Right. And that's the thing is, like, culturally, we might just totally reject this. Right. And it might be that it has to be 100 years from now when it's Robot Kara and Robot Annie, and you and right. I are, like, you know, yeah. in the singularity talking 
talking to each other uh, as figments or whatever. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Where people will accept it. So I, I do want to talk about that, the, the yeah. mentality in this country around it, because it's every time this is met, people, they just, it's an anathema to the idea. And right now what's going on from in is the idea that welfare should be uh, work with welfare. Yeah. You have to work. So mm-hmm. how, how are you going to do something like this if now people are trying to link welfare, which is a version of this, mm-hmm. right, to work? There's you don't been get this snap unless you work. You don't get this yeah. unless you. No, it's it's a really amazing phenomenon, and it started in a bunch of red states that mm-hmm. they basically turned a bunch of government programs slowly into welfare. So it used to be that welfare was the big one. You need to work in order to get welfare. It's TANF, the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program. Mm-hmm. And then there were some work requirements in SNAP or food stamps, but. Um, some especially red states said, we want to attach work requirements to other programs, or we want to make the work requirements more onerous. And we want to make sure that people are not getting, are getting very temporary periods of assistance. What's happened now- Because then they get used to them, right? Yeah, exactly. This is a temporary boost to yeah. help you until well, you figure your life out. temporary then doesn't stay temporary, right? That's yeah. the whole problem. No, they, they, they do. They have these like six-month time limits or nine-month time limits. After that, mm-hmm. you can't. Or you know, for a lot of programs, they'll say, you can have this for six months in a five-year period, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And what's happened now with the Trump administration is they have signaled, they have let states attach work requirements to Medicaid. Mm-hmm. So this is happening as we speak right now. You know, states like Kentucky- are attaching a work requirement to Medicaid where there never was one. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, they've said that they're going to attach work requirements to programs in Section 8, so housing assistance. Mm-hmm. So um, you get public housing, you have to work. Exactly. And then they're adding more work requirements to programs that already have them, like SNAP. And, you know, during this time period, TANF is, TANF, uh, the amount of money that the government spends on TANF is the same dollar figure, not inflation adjusted dollar figure as it did in 1996. So fewer and fewer families are getting it. Um, I think it's 16.5 billion. And what do you make of this effort to to link work with it? Because when you're pushing about universal basic income, it's that you'd have to have work attachments to it, correct? Or not? You could. There's no reason that you couldn't. But the issue is that um, most poor families, they do work. Uh, the issue is that they aren't making enough money and mm-hmm. they, you know, don't have enough to spend. And then the other issue is that for the people who are remaining out of the labor force, they tend to have real challenges connecting to it. So maybe they're illiterate. Maybe they have a problem with drug or alcohol abuse. Maybe they're in a really rural area where there's just no jobs. Um, maybe they have an undiagnosed disability. And so forcing them to get work uh, isn't really going to do anything. The other mm-hmm. thing is, you know, maybe they're so low income that they can't work, right? If you don't have money for bus fare to get to a job, how are you going to get a job? Right. And so with those people, uh, work requirements don't do much. And there's not very much in terms of supportive services to help people. So we're in San Francisco right now. And San Francisco actually has an awesome model for this and a completely unique model in the country mm-hmm. where uh, with their TANF money, their welfare money, they instead run this job program where they set people up with kind of like apprenticeships mm-hmm. and uh, they connect with local employers and they provide subsidies. They say, hey, if you'll if you'll take this person yeah. in the TANF program, we're going to pay part of her salary for some right. period of time. This works really well. So there's models out there. But again, the country just doesn't tend to use them because work requirements and these sort of restrictions on welfare have tended to be a way to cut the program, not actually to help the people. To help the people. Yeah, right. <laughs> that are using them. All right, we're going to talk about San Francisco soon because I think that's one of the big issues here is how do you deal with yeah. homelessness and and yes. people out of work. Um, and then where it goes from here and where you think it's going to 
erupt or whether it's going to be successful because you apparently think it's going to revolutionize work and poverty and remake the world. So we'll talk about that when we get back. We're here with Annie Lowry. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode and the smartest way to hire. If you run a tech company, then you're probably very used to, well, running. Sprinting through dev and testing cycles, scrambling to find investors, hurtling through regulatory reviews. So when you're hiring, you don't want to waste time interviewing people who don't have all the skills and experience you need. You need a way to quickly identify the strongest, most qualified candidates. You need ZipRecruiter. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes across the network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So if you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Go to ZipRecruiter.com decode right now where you can try ZipRecruiter for free. The lowest price there is. Don't waste another second. Go to ZipRecruiter.com decode and start putting that technology to work for you. That's ZipRecruiter.com decode. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week we answer your questions about consumer tech and this week's news. I'm in China and Australia this week. I'm passing the microphone to Recode senior social media editor, Kurt Wagner. Take it away, Kurt. Thanks, Kara. Uh, this week I talked with Omar Raja, the founder of House of Highlights. Omar, what did we talk about? We talked about what House of Highlights is. It's not just an Instagram account. It's becoming its big brand that kind of started when I was in college. And a couple of NBA celebrities who you have since met Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade. But maybe that's Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony. Not bad. Snoop Dogg gets a a shout out in there. Yeah, he does. Um, And it's crazy because I was a kid that just admired all these people and now I get to meet them. Um, And I kind of constantly every week think about how in the world did I get here? It's awesome. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. So hope you will uh, check it out. Back to you, Kara. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with Annie Lowry. She's a writer for The Atlantic whose new book is called Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. All right, the title of your book, Give People Money. Yeah. Again, makes people nervous. Like, why would you give people money without something in exchange for it. Right. And like, where does that money come from? And where does it come from? <laughs> That's the money? two parts. Who's money? My money? I don't want to give people my money. Um, let's talk about San Francisco. You brought it up as it's got yeah. a very innovative program around uh, around welfare that people, they link people with work and things yep. like that. Um, but San Francisco now has become the national poster child for a disastrous situation around homelessness, which if I remember, it was uh, Care Not Cash or was it, it was it was under Gavin Newsom where they didn't want to give cash yep. like that they, or cash not care one of them where they tried to fix this in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. What, how do you when you see that kind of poverty because you're like there shouldn't be poverty in this country is is the concept behind this is that nobody should be living right in, or we don't in, have to right like we in choose destitution it. Yeah. we choose to let them let people live like this. Yep. Talk about how you, when you look at a city like this, which is so wealthy and so has, has so many opportunities for people, that you cr- you have this permanent underclass that seems not to be fixable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's a crisis out here. And it's a really interesting... All across California, by the way, where oh, most gosh. of the homeless people live, actually. Yeah, and it's funny. I was talking, I was writing a story. So I was talking to a bunch of people in Reno, and they're like, all of a sudden, we look like California, too. Like, we have mm-hmm. this new homeless population, right? And I think that that it's really interesting here, because you do, you have this, this chasm between rich and poor. You have a city that is increasingly unlivable for anybody except for people who are so insensitive to the prices of things. Mm-hmm. Because they're, I mean, they are, they're many manufacturing just such extraordinary wealth out here. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. And it gets to it gets to kind of a, a few interesting issues. So one is that like, you know, the problem out here has to do with housing regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to do with like a lack of housing, a mm-hmm. lack of public transit, uh, and underinvestment in things. Um, it, it's, it's a really complicated, naughty policy problem that would take a lot of things to fix. We could have a, like, we could snap our fingers, institute a wealth tax and have a UBI here, and San Francisco would still be unlivable for most mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So despite the, <laughs> despite the, the, the title of the book, right? Mm-hmm. Like these problems are hard, right. but not impossible to solve. Right. Um, that said, you know, I think that it is true that when you think about universal cash payments, unconditional cash payments, that you have to figure that they are going to be most important for the most destitute. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there, that also becomes one of these kind of challenging things, right? You know, it's, uh, it's all these studies about like why people give or don't give money to people on the street. And they're like, well, if they're just going to spend it on drugs, am I yeah, really helping them? Usually, yeah. Right. And, and I think that San Francisco and a lot of other big and especially big liberal cities recognize that you can't just give people money exactly like they need healthcare mm-hmm. they need housing right. um they need supportive services they might need literacy or job training mm-hmm. readiness programs and so um the us has some of these things but not others and it's it's really interesting again being in california that takes a much more aggressive view of this that has a really thick set of social services in comparison to a state like Utah or Wyoming or Mississippi. You know, like the federalism means that we're constantly running a bunch of experiments on these things. Right. And despite the fact that California has this really aggressive Medicaid program and a lot of housing programs, you know, you still you still have a crisis, right? Right, absolutely. So yeah. this is not something UBA is to solve. So what is the solving of uh, for UBA? What is what it's trying to solve is get people above the give them a, ch- a working chance. Yeah. Absolutely. So basically give them uh, not necessarily, you know, perhaps not a handout, but a a kind of a safety net. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a form of social insurance Mm -hmm. more than it is a form of social welfare. Right. We're saying that, like, we're not going to let anybody in this society fall down too far. And that's the thing that we do as Americans. Right. There's no there's no there's no real like safety net at the bottom. No. No, uh, not like there is in, in Europe or Japan right. or a bunch of other countries. There's just holes and you follow the way through. Right. So this is one way of, of doing that. But there's, you know, there's others. And, and Democrats especially are starting to talk about a lot of these big universal and, you know, big universal programs. So I think during the Obama years and the Clinton years, you saw this kind of like very careful, tentative, technocratic policy machinations, right? Like the ACA is a really complicated series of programs to help different people Mm -hmm. in different ways. And the thing that UBI and things like a jobs guarantee or an expansion of the EITC or, you know, free college, they're just big universal ideas that have become really attractive Mm -hmm. on the left. Um, And again, I think you're seeing a lot of them come from the national level politicians coming from California. It's interesting because we had John Warner at uh, Code and uh, for a minute there, I was like, he should really run for office because it was sensible. (laughs) Um, But he was talking about, he said one of the issues obviously is that the Democrats are so fixated on Trump that they're not going to talk about what they're going to do. But there's all kinds of issues they have to deal with. One is um, 
training, obviously, retraining, mm-hmm. which they're not talking about, the ideas uh, behind what happens when things get digitized. Yep. Um, what do you, how, how do you have portable benefits? These are sensible things. And he, and he, uh, he was very much against the idea of all these free handouts, this idea of free college and free this and free that because you can't pay for it. So you yeah. have Republicans on the one side pushing a certain agenda, a very mm-hmm. populist agenda, where fend for yourself, too bad. And then this other group saying, let's give away, the, and you know, by, by, and then ruining the, the budget by tax cuts for the rich. And the other side saying, everybody gets everything. Yep. Everybody gets every piece of candy. Right. And we all get it. Yeah, so, but you're right that there's been this po- like populist polarization on both sides, mm-hmm. right? Republicans are like, no taxes, total free reign for businesses to do whatever the heck that they want. Right. And Democrats are like, free stuff for everybody. Right, and we'll yeah. figure out how to pay for it maybe 100 years from now. Right, exactly. <laughs> we'll be dead in the end. And so when you have something that UBI coming, what's the success of it? From where you're seeing it, when do you know that it's working? Or is there never going to be a proof point? So I actually, if I were, I'm a terrible... travels, where did you see it? So, I mean, it is absolutely working to alleviate poverty in low-income countries. There's nothing to suggest that it wouldn't do the same thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're so seeing in Canada... Give an Canada, example of a country, a country that, that's like us, Canada. Yeah, so Canada now has this UBI set of payments... And we're going to have results pretty soon that are that are going to show, right? But we have we have just tons of experimental data from the U.S., from other countries, from Iran, from all around the world that shows that if you give people money, it reduces poverty. It's mm-hmm. just really straightforward. And so, what I think will actually happen here, I think it's very unlikely that we'll see anything like a UBI unless we see those kind of technological changes that we were talking about and changes in work. But I do think that that one thing that is gaining momentum on both sides is to have kind of a UBI for kids. Mm-hmm. And basically to say, we don't want kids to grow up in poverty anymore. We can all agree that kids are not responsible for their own fortunes. Mm-hmm. And I think that oh, that... Well, we w- can't all agree that. <laughs> we think that immigrants. those kids should be working. Right. Damn no, it. No, but I mean, look at what's happening on immigration. They don't... I think. know. So I know. It's, we yeah. don't all agree on that. My guess here, <laughs> we certainly don't... Yeah. It's <laughs> everything has become divisive, I suppose. Yeah. But I think that that is probably the the low hanging fruit here, right? Um, to say, so that, what would, how would that look? What would that look like? If you have, it would probably be somewhat means tested. So if your family income for a family of four is less than thirty thousand dollars a year, we're going to give you a two hundred dollar cash payment for ki- per kid under the age of fifteen or something right. like that. And that's a check that you get. Yeah, it would be like some sort of check. And you, you can't get. ensure that it goes to the kids, though, right? It just you get it. Nope. And that's one of the hard things, right? Yeah. Like. TANF is supposed to be for kids, right? We focus on the parents a lot, mm-hmm. but in order to get TANF, like y- you got to have a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and just rhetorically, the conversation focuses on the decision of the parents. But we know through, you know, things like the child tax credit that this tends to be pretty effective. Mm-hmm. And it does. It boosts the number of calories that kids are eating. It keeps them in school for more days. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tends to make the environment and in the house how, better. It, how is it differentiated from TANF or whatever, whatever program people are getting SNAP or whatever? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing with, with, TANF or SNAP is that you are kind of receiving a constant payment where a lot of the other stuff, again, it happens through the tax code. So something like the EITC, it's mm-hmm. boosting the money that Explain you're making. That is, yeah, sorry, earned income tax credit. Right, right. And so if you're relatively low income, it's quite likely that, that the government is basically going to make sure that you don't pay taxes and you might get a nice rebate. Right. And so it's kind of invisible, but it's really important to people. Mm-hmm. And same thing with the child, child tax credit. It comes through the tax code. You don't really see it, but we know that it's really effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
As opposed to this, which is, but how is it different than the others? Because how do you differentiate it with parents or whoever is getting it? Mm, you mean just like in terms of yeah. how they're actually receiving it? Right, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Snap, you you get a card. Right. And you can spend it at a certain number of stores on a certain number of things. You know, Section 8 comes through a kind of complicated right, series you where you're getting it through the housing. Medicaid, obviously, there you are Take signing care. up with a government program. Um, and then a lot of things come through the tax code. Right, through um, the tax code, as opposed to this is just... Yeah, cash. but TANF is the only one where you might be receiving like a literal cash payment outside of mm-hmm. um, Social Security or SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income, which is a program for very, very low-income people, mostly elderly and disabled. Mm-hmm. So what is the, from your perspective, from writing this book, going around the country and the world, looking at these programs, what is the likelihood that it's going to be widespread in this country? I don't see it with this gang in the in the... No, I mean, we're going through this unbelievable moment of polarization Mm -hmm. where there's no middle, right? Like there's no sensible middle ground for policymaking. Mm -hmm. And so I think that right now, um, if you see, you know, I think it's likely that we'll see a Democratic House and Senate again soon, but it's going to take a long time for that to happen. And if that happens, then they'll certainly pass something. It's a big question as to you know what they're going to focus on. They have a bunch of big ideas out there, and, and I don't think that the party has coalesced around one. No, no, no. Yeah. But something like this, you're going to have absolute evidence of it. And I would say within 10 years, there's going to be European countries that have it, and it's not unlikely that someplace like Canada will, along with all these lower-income countries that are already doing this. In the U.S., I think it's going to take a lot. Culturally, we are not even close to something like this where we say, you know what, we're okay paying taxes for somebody to get money for free mm-hmm. for no for 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 nothing back. Yeah. Um so I think it would be a big cultural change and I think that that would have to come through, you know, something like a um you know, robots taking all our jobs <laughs> where everybody needs it, where everybody might more people might need it than yeah, exactly. the regular poor people who people in this country despise. Right. I mean, it seems like we despise the poor. Yeah, we certainly judge them pretty harshly. Yeah. And will that come with work requirements, do you think, UBI? I wouldn't be surprised. They're yeah. pretty pop. You know, I mean, one thing is when we think about the policymaking process in this country, mm-hmm. like things do have to get ironed out in the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would not be totally surprised if there was a work requirement that came with this sort of like in You can't just TANF. have the money. You can't just have it. Right. But maybe there's fewer requirements. Maybe those lo- work requirements are looser. And again, I, I think it's, you know, I don't think it's unlikely that a state like California or maybe Hawaii um, are the ones that are thinking about this currently. Like, let's try this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you might see a sort of laboratory of democracy thing where where you'll start to see it happen. And, and then, then maybe other states will or will not. Nationalized. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like with cars or whatever, like self-driving cars or things like that. Precisely. Right. Lastly, when you think about the political elements, because I think about that right now all the time, are there surprises that people are for this that you don't think would be? Yeah, there's a weird, strange bedfellows thing going on. So, like, libertarians really like this idea. Yeah, they do. Because you just get rid of the government, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like thousands of government bureaucrats. Right. And um, one interesting thing is that there's actually a lot of Republicans that like the idea of giving cash to kids. Mm-hmm. They hate child poverty. And they're like, all right, maybe maybe that's a good, a good use for that. Um, so you saw Marco Rubio and Mike Lee, who are really arch conservative senators, get behind mm-hmm. an expansion of the child tax credit mm-hmm. um, because they want families to have more kids and they want to support those kids better. 
but like most of the most of the um, enthusiasm here is coming absolutely from the left and mm-hmm. particularly, you know, states with a thick left like California, where you have all sorts of different coalitions. Yeah, we got a lot of left here. Yeah, you have a ton of left here. Yeah, I got a lot of left. A really diverse left. <laughs> yeah. Um, they can get real mad, too. Yeah, yeah, they can. Yeah. And there are, you know, it's, it's funny. We're, we're here talking. This is this is June currently. We're talking yeah. before the primaries tomorrow and uh Seeing people battle this out is really interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It's interesting in San Francisco right now. The entire topic is around homelessness. Yeah. With none of them with any good solutions that I can. No, and it's, you know, I think it's it's interesting because I was talking with some folks about this and they're like, until you solve the housing cost crisis for anybody, you don't solve homelessness. Here. No, you don't. <laughs> like, 100%. And nobody seems to know how to, how to yeah. make houses cheap here. Yeah, I was in a, a <laughs> park uh, the other day and they were like, let's have one park dedicated to the homeless. I'm like, mm. like... Okay. And that makes it permanent. Like that to me. You know what I mean? It's not a permanent. It was interesting. And Mm -hmm. I was like, why don't we just give them money? And they're like, no, then they'll use it. It was was fascinating how it popped up. And they didn't like the idea of universal basic income. Yeah. And it's kind of, so you, you know, Utah is the state that's done best with homelessness. They have this housing first model, but Utah has like really cheap housing prices compared to California. So it's all well and good. live in Utah? I'm sorry, Utahns, but California is a nicer place to live. (laughs) Not anymore. <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, it's 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 not an impossible problem to solve if you're living in a state where you can, in a city, rent an apartment for seven hundred bucks a month. Right. Right. Where I'd, can you rent any? You no, can, you can like buy, a parking spot. No, you can have a you can have a cardboard box on the corner of Market <laughs> and uh, Sanchez for that, and, and no heating. Yeah, no, no, no heating. Nothing so, else. Last question. So, do you think tech is going to really push this? Because there's so many things tech is like getting politicized on immigration, whatever. This is a highly political thing. Do you see them being the ones that push this through? I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. Let's say that there's a company and maybe it's, you know, one of the the self-driving Waymo or something. Right, right. And Waymo all of a sudden is responsible for putting like 30,000 people out of a job in one month. Right. Let's say that this happens. Right. Let's say it's going to happen. Uber or Lyft or any of them. Right. I think at that point, they are going to feel a lot of political pressure to say, here's the stuff that we're doing to actually not just help higher income people scoot around San Francisco mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. bit easier. Here's what we're doing. And I think that, that that's the pressure that I would watch for. If, if a Waymo has mm-hmm. to say, like, we see that we're putting folks out of jobs, but here's here's what we're suggesting happens. Have you met these people yet? Because I know. They, <laughs> they take no responsibility for, say, you know, Wrecking an election, for example. <laughs> they have no responsibility over the data they collect. Yeah. It's just a but thanks to, you know, thanks to folks like you, the yeah. reckoning is happening. Reckoning. I'm not sure that... I'm calling it the purge now. I like I, that. I know. I get to go out and, like, knife everybody, like, yeah. one night a year. Exactly. But it's 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 so... Funny. F- I think it's so fat. If the purge happened in yeah. San Francisco, yeah. I don't think that there's... There's a more fun city for that. Oh my God! Please let's not have that happen in San Francisco. Um, I would win, but oh gosh, I would, I would, I would want to be on your team on that. Yeah, but yeah, I know there's this reckoning happening, right? And like maybe, maybe there's like some humility. Tech has to start to have answers. Yeah, maybe there's a sense of like we're going to drag you in front of a congressional panel. Yeah, (laughs) if the congressmen were as smart as they aren't. Like, sure. That's the issue. They don't even know how Facebook works. <laughs> oh, can you tell me what's your business? I was like, what? Like, you don't oh, even understand. Gosh. I know. It was yeah. an embarrassment. People get mad at me for saying that, but it was an embarrassment. In any case, we'll see if they can take on big issues like this. Is there a senator that's really behind this? Besides Marco, is there some? Yeah, there's, um, so Cory Booker mm-hmm. is behind a bunch Sounds of this. Sounds like a Booker thing. 
bunch of them have kind of like flirted with it. Uh, so Bernie Sanders has kind of flirted he with likes this. That. And, he and likes that very much. He, <laughs> it's a pretty good Sanders. You. you know, and there's there's a bunch of these other ones, other senators that are kind of lining up behind. They don't want to be seen as being like the centrist anymore. Right. And so like a Kirsten Gillibrand, who's oh, like, dear. I'm interested in like a jobs guarantee. I'm interested in cash payments. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. I saw her at a fancy restaurant in Los Angeles this weekend, but okay. <laughs> I'm not saying no boo, but it was like no boo. In fact, it was. Anyway, uh, it's interesting to see how they, they do it. Annie, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And we'll see where it goes. And we'll check in with you to see if anything happens after the next election. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. This helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other podcasts, Too Embarrassed to Ask and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Saturday. Tune in then.